Good job. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I <clears throat> want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 16. <clears throat> As you know, we have been coming through the book of Proverbs now for some quite some time. And um, it's been a great book uh, based on where our church is at, uh, the level of spirituality that uh, many of you have uh, grown to and how we work with uh, in so many areas of ministry and trying to reach people. Uh, Proverbs was the natural book for us to uh, uh, begin to look at. And it's really <clears throat> helped a lot of people come along <clears throat> and grow. And yet in Proverbs, which is probably <clears throat> the deepest book in the Bible, uh, every once in a while you come across a passage or a, a verse or a couple of verses that just go down to the very core level of the Word of God. And uh, they're absolutely paramount passages, I call them, in my own personal view of them. And uh, today we're going to look at one of the most revealing verses in all the Bible. I don't know of another <clears throat> teaching in the Word of God when it's done correctly and exhaustively as it needs to be that will answer more questions about certain things that people ask about. And you know that we put a lot of emphasis on the Bible here. That's what we do. We don't care about anything else other than getting the truth of God's Word and then getting it into people's lives and letting it do what it does so well. So many of you uh, are, are great Bible students. So today will be a great piece of the puzzle for you. Some of you are people who are just uh, like the mid-level. You want to know, you want to learn. Maybe you're just getting into it. It'll be good for you because it will answer a lot of things for you. And if you're somebody that's just a brand new Christian, somebody that maybe you're saved but you never really got into the Bible, that's okay too because even in that case, it will really help you understand some things about the Bible, God, and what's going on and maybe light that fuse into your life that you understand that we are here to help you. Now, you talk about a verse that opens up a can of worms. This is the verses today. And understanding the long-range scope of these verses, in one respect, will be devastating to so many heresies that are out there in the church today. It's quite unbelievable. You know as well as I do that wherever you have the truth, you're going to have heresy that comes in. But all through the Bible, we have it all around us today. Nothing devastates and unveils the heresies and the false teaching more than a good, solid, in-depth study of something in the Bible that covers so much ground so quickly, as we will today. And we will answer so many questions on the level that most of God's people never really have a chance to get to, but they always seem to ask these kind of questions. Now, let me start by saying this. In the Bible... God has revealed to us three distinct separate plans. If you want to break the Bible down into the lowest common denominator of what God is doing, it's simply the fact that God has instituted three distinct plans throughout the Bible. All three plans are separate from the other plan, but yet all three plans are connected to each other. <clears throat> it's a lot like the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three separate identities. They each have a separate function, but yet they're all together. 
When you look and understand these three plans, and I'm obviously not going to have time to give it to you in great detail, but certainly enough that you'll grasp and understand it today before you leave here if you, if you listen. You will know that these three plans, each individually, lay themselves out in a different format. But you're going to see how that they're all connected together. And even though each one performs a specific function for God, they're all connected and go back to God. Now, the first one that I want to talk briefly about is that God has a plan for the universe. There's a reason why God created the universe. And when I talk about the universe, I'm talking about the galaxies that we live in. And, you know, I remember uh, being in astronomy for so many years and, and doing astrophotography and taking pictures of, uh, of, of, the, of the heavens and all the galaxies and the planets and all those things. I remember back when the Hubble telescope first came into being and they put it up in outer space. It was a, it was a revelation like no man had ever seen. <clears throat> now we had a telescope out in space that did not have to look through all of the dirt of our atmosphere. And now we had a telescope that could see beyond farther than anything that we could look at on Earth. And I remember one of the most astounding things that I ever saw was that they pointed the Hubble telescope at a portion of the sky. And honestly, you could stand in your backyard and take the the head of a pin and hold it at arm's length and cover that pinpoint of sky that they photographed. And they left the camera open to take in the light for like 12, 15 hours. And when they were done and they they developed the, the picture, it was one of the most astounding pictures I ever saw in my life. On that one picture, held out at arm's length, if you were to do it here, and cover that piece of sky with the head of a pen, the Hubble telescope found an image that had over 250,000 galaxies in that sparse sky. And yet I want to tell you, if you could be right in the middle of all those galaxies and you'd look out, you wouldn't see anything different than you see right here around us. That's how far they are. They found out since then that the universe is filled with galaxies, island universes just like ours, billions and trillions and trillions of stars that are sun just like ours. And it's an incredible thing once you begin to understand the immensity of our universe. Bible calls it the second heaven. I use the term universe because most people are more familiar with that. But it's that great expanse of space out there, which we call eternity, that has billions and billions and endless trillions of galaxies. Each galaxy, 600 million light years across meaning if you got in one end in a rocket ship and traveled the speed of light 186,000 miles a second, it'd take you 600 million years to get to the other side. They're everywhere. Why is that? Why did God do that? Why did God create that? You see, so many times we get so limited in our scope because we live on planet Earth and we live in Kansas City and everything revolves around our life. We forget about the fact that, man, there's an eternity out there of space And God created billions and billions of universes. Why? Because God has a plan. God has a plan for this universe right now that we live in. When you look up in the sky and you see what is commonly called the Milky Way, that's the arm of a spiral galaxy that we're in, our own galaxy. And Earth is located just as a a pinprick, just as a, a grain of sand. 
in that immense galaxy. It's incredible. Why? What was God's point? Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of God's government and peace there shall be no end. To the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The Bible says that God's government, when he established it, is going to go on forever. God had a plan for the universe. Then the second plan that God has. God has a plan for planet earth. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it and he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Did you ever notice how special the earth is in the Bible? I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. It's special to God. The Bible says that God formed earth to be inhabited. You know, here again, in science, they now have the technology that they find what they call exoplanets. I think the, I get an update on them all the time. I think the last update I had that they had found now 800 planets that you cannot see with the naked eye. They're outside our universe. Some of them are in our universe. But they're immense planets. And most scientists say, by the way they figure it, that, that, uh, uh, that they're, they're, they're Earth-like, and yet they're larger and bigger. And, of course, you know where science goes. Science goes that maybe there's life out there on those planets. Well, we know that that's not true. We know that God had a plan for the Earth And God has a plan for the universe. And when God's government begins to increase, as Isaiah 9, 7 says, you're going to better understand God's role for the universe and God's role for planet Earth. Did you ever notice Earth is the only planet with all the right bounds to sustain life? Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. It never, its rotation of 88 days equals its revolutions around itself, and so the same side always stays toward the sun. On the sun side, it's hot enough to melt lead. On the cold side, it's cold enough to freeze oxygen. Don't want to live there. Venus, the next planet out from the sun. Temperature during the day is 600 degrees Fahrenheit. They thought that it might, because it was covered with clouds, that it might have life on it to some form. Because it's almost like a sister planet in size to us. And of course, when they landed probes down there, they found out that uh, there's a constant rainstorm. That's why the clouds on Venus. Except it doesn't rain water, it rains sulfuric acid. Not a place you want to go. Then you have the Earth. After the Earth, you have Mars. Mars is farther out from the Earth, and of course, Mars uh, it gets so cold there that it gets like 200 degrees below zero. Then you have Jupiter, uh, the great gas giant. I mean, on and on you go. The farther you get, the more bleak it becomes, <clears throat> the more colder it becomes, and the more desolate it becomes. But right in the middle is one planet that God put a perfect balance in, not too far from the sun, not too close to the sun, an ozone layer that brings out the, burns out the solar radiation so it doesn't fry us, except for you ladies who eat it up with your hairspray. You know, Earth is the only planet that was named by God. Did you ever notice that? 
I mean, we study the earth from Genesis 1-1 and right on through to Revelation chapter 22, it's called earth. All the other planets are named after gods. Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, the king of the gods, Saturn, Venus, Pluto, uh, the farthest planet out, the darkest planet named after the god of the underworld. But God named earth. And no man ever changed that name. You know why? God's got a plan for the earth. Now, the third plan that God has is God has a plan for me and you. We talk a lot today about in our church about God's plan for your life versus God's will for your life. And we make it clear that God's plan is what God wants you to do. God's will is what God wants you to be. And God's plan for your life is revealed to you through God's will for your life. The, the, the definitive chapter is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that says that when you go through the transformation of your mind, that you perform the will of God in your life. God has something that he wants you to do. There's something he wants you to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, And God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Now, do you see that verse? That verse says that in the ages to come, he's going to use our salvation and what he's doing in your life right now to show somebody God. Whoa. You see, God has a plan. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for the earth. And God has a plan for me and you. They're all three separate, yet they're all connected together. Here's the connection. God has a plan for the earth. The earth is found in the universe. God has a plan for your life. Your life, you're on planet earth, which is in the universe. They're all connected. Now, with that being said, And I want to keep this real simple today. We have our chart on the wall over here that we use. And when we built the church, there's only one thing I wanted. That chart originally was a black and white chart in a little book that we sell in the bookstore. I found a, we have it for sale in a bookstore, a much smaller convention in, 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 uh, some of you have it up in your house in color. But I I took that one in color, the small one, cut it in pieces, and took it to a printing place in Raytown who made that for me. That's the only, that is the greatest chart that really lays out the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 2 that is simple, understandable. It's the greatest chart I've ever seen. We use it all the time. Most people, when you see visitors or them, they'll stand over there and be looking at that chart, and they're, 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 they're captivated by it. It's a great chart. Most of them never read that first little parentheses underneath Genesis chapter 1. I have my good buddy over here, Drake, who can read. <clears throat> Drake, if you'd go up there and read that for us. <clears throat> I picked Drake because I told him when he preached the last time, he, he got a great voice. So show us, read it real loud for us there, Drake. God's original purpose was to populate an infinite universe with a people made in his image, subject to him as almighty sovereign. This first trial ends in Genesis 1-2, 
with a rebellion of these spiritual beings and a recreation and a recommission for man, made lower than the angels, to begin the work anew. This trial ends in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. The subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God, himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation and to absolutely ensure that God will finish to perfection his original plan. Revelation 20 through 22. Amen. So be it. Amen. Now, do you understand what he just said? That Bible says God's plan was to have originally a creation of sinless beings that loved him, that fellowshiped with him, that he wanted to populate all through the universe. But God could not just let that happen. He had to have a plan. And when man fell, Adam and Eve in the garden, man now is alienated from God. He can't fulfill that plan now. And so what does God do? God, as it says, himself came down, took on the body of a man, and redeemed his fallen creation. That you and I could have that eternal relationship with him when he picks it up. I got news for you, folks. I know life is great. I enjoy it. You enjoy it. We all like to eat. We all like ball games. We all like to do fun things. But I want to tell you something. There's a bigger picture to God's plan than just living your little life on planet Earth. There's something God is going to accomplish. And he wants you to be part of it. And he saved you for that reason. But I want to show you the process of God's plan. It's incredible. Now, I want to tell you a Bible story today. But I need you to start to understand some things before we get into that that story exactly. When it comes to the plan of God, And understanding the plan of God, there's one single doctrine that you have to fully understand. It is the doctrine of free will within the Bible. It's the key to God's plan. Seventeen times in the Bible, you will find a reference to free will of man to choose to do something for God or for not to do something for God. So from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God had put a plan in effect to accomplish his overall goal for the universe, for earth, and for man. An eternal purpose, an eternal plan spent with God and his creation that that creation, through a free will process, has to choose to be with him by his own free will choice. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 again. This great eternal government of God. We'll look at it a little deeper now than we just read it a moment ago. He says this. Now you're going to glean some things out of here, so get ready. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the host 
will perform this. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we ask you your blessings upon our time today. We ask you, Father, to help us to understand and glean and to learn and to grow through this. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory and the praise. And thank you, Father, for such a marvelous plan. But thank you, Father, for wanting to include us in it. And, Lord, thank you for giving us the grace to be able to see and understand. And, Lord, we just love you now and thank you. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You can obviously see the punctuation after that part of the verse. That first part of the verse is the first coming of Christ. When he came the first time, he came as a child and he came as a son. The next part of the verse, after the paragraph, after the uh, punctuation. Uh, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's the millennial reign of Christ. That's the government that he's going to be talking about, that we're going to be talking about. So you have the first coming of Christ. You have punctuation. Then you have the second coming of Christ. Then you have punctuation again. And then it says, And a name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's eternity. You have the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the establishment of God's government, and then moving into eternity in one verse. There's the plan of God. And in the process of that, he says in verse 7, he comes back and he establishes the government, that's the millennial reign of Christ, in verse 6. Then verse 7, he says this, of the increase of that government and peace, there shall be no end. So once that government starts, it's only going to increase. It's going to keep moving. That government starts at the first coming of Christ, it got postponed, for those of you who understand your Bible, in Acts chapter 7, we know that, and then picked up at the second coming of Christ and goes right on into eternity. Now, our verse today will be Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 and 5. And here's what it says. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though he join, though he, he though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Now, what you have here is the clearest verse in all of the Bible on how that the devil, the devil, is part of God's plan. If there's any character in the Bible we are messed up on, it's the understanding of the devil, his function, and his job. And I understand the reason for that because he's gotten a lot of bad press down through history. A lot of people conjecture about him without basing it on the Bible. And I must confess to you today, I don't pick the line my sermons up with the calendar. I am sorry that I'm preaching on the devil on Mother's Day. It just happened that way. Please do not infer anything to anybody about nothing. I worried about this all week long. Somebody out there is going to go out of here today. He was pitching about me. <laughs> yes, you're probably right. <clears throat> Not really. But this is the clearest verse in the Bible that shows you that God made him for a purpose. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 says, God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. 
And just in case you couldn't figure out who was talking here, I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, that's quite a revelation. God creating the devil. God creating darkness. God creating evil. Wow. What kind of new doctrine is this? It's called Bible doctrine when you get into the Bible. Now, for you Bible students here, let me give you a little nugget here. And honestly, if you gap this, this is worth coming this morning for him. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. You notice that he created darkness, that's the devil. He created evil, that's the devil. But he formed the light, that's Jesus Christ. You know what that verse shows you? Jesus Christ is not a created being. He's always been there. He created the darkness, he created the evil, but he formed the light. He didn't create the light, because he is the light. If you're a Bible, that's worth coming today for if you're a Bible student. God creating the devil for his purpose, made him for his plan. Now, without a doubt, the devil is the second most important character in the Bible, only to Christ. There's more information on him than any other outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's something special in the Bible. He's used of God, but he's totally under God's control. We talked Thursday night how that in the book of Job, when the devil came in and he wanted to test Job, that God put him under parameters. Yeah, you can take all that he had, but you can't touch him. Yeah, now you can touch him, but you can't kill him. So the devil sometimes looks like he has complete control, but the under understanding is the fact he only has the control that God allows him to have because he's accomplishing a purpose for God. You say, what was the purpose with Job? Job was a lot closer to God and stronger after he went through his ordeal than before he went through it. And you know, sometimes God will put us through negative things so we become stronger through it than just going through our humdrum life and not growing anywhere. Now, this is going to be a deep study, but I want to tell you also, I'm going to move back and forth, and I'm not going to miss a great practical application when there's one to be found. So you just bear with me here. He's, a, he's something special in the Bible. He does his work by deception, by illusion, and that's a great key. You see, God limits what he can do. So within those limits, he has learned how to form a deception how to form an illusion of something that isn't real. Now, before we look at all this, allow me to give you some information on, on the devil. I, I think there's some things that we need to understand, and this will help you in overall, but I think it'll just help you, you know, in, in, in general of understanding it. First of all, the first thing you need to realize, and some of this is going to be a shock to some of you, I get this. The first thing you need to realize is that in the Bible, there are two Christs. We hear about the Lord Jesus Christ all the time, and rightly so. But I want you to know that there are two Christs in the Bible. The word Christ comes from the word Christos, which means anointed, or anointed one. And we are told in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, that Lucifer is called the anointed cherub that covereth. So he also is a Christ, but he's a false Christ. When he shows up in a tribulation, what is he called? The anti-devil? He's called the anti-what? Christ. Because he is the false Christ. 
When you get into the book of Revelation, you'll find that when God's talking about the tribulation period, when the devil through the Antichrist is very active, like in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 and Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, when he makes a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, his Christ. So you won't get him confused. Over there in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, when he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he clarifies it by saying, the Lord's Christ. There's two Christs in the Bible. Hold on to that. We'll build on that here in a second. Now, the second thing I want you to know about the devil is he's not an angel. I hear this all the time. Well, the devil's a fallen angel. No, no, the devil is not a fallen angel. When you go into your Bible and understand your Bible in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah chapter 14, you realize the Bible says that he was a cherub. A cherub is not an angel. Say, what do you, how's the, the difference? They're spelled different. <laughs> Their job is different. The two passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel show us that at some point he was over all of God's creation. He had a throne, the Bible says, on this earth, most likely in Jerusalem, I would say. The Bible says that he's in Eden. In Ezekiel 28, 13, that Lucifer, before he fell, became the devil, was in Eden, the garden of God. There was an Eden in the garden of God long before Adam showed up. In fact, if you study when Adam shows up, God names everything when Adam shows up. He doesn't name the garden. The garden's already named because it had been around for quite a while. Now, you know what happens. Lucifer gets lifted up because of his pride and his beauty. He thinks he's better than God. He wants to override the authority of God. So what does he try to do? He tries to split the first church in the Bible. And he gets cast down. And now he's called the devil. He's called Satan. He's called a serpent. He's called a wicked one. He's called a dragon. Now the third thing I want you to understand is because he is a Christ, he will be the greatest imitator of the real Christ in all the history of the world. And he does this by deception, by illusion. Let me give you a couple of instances. He has a church. He has religious objects. He has ministers. In Matthew chapter 10, he can heal. He has a choir. He has religions, all kinds. And yes, he has his own Bible. You bet he does. In fact, and I say this all the time, if Jesus Christ and the devil walked in those two doors together and one came up this side and stood on this side, and one came up and stood on this side, you couldn't tell them apart. Everybody would think that the devil would be instantly recognizable because he'd have a long tail, a red suit, and horns, and a pitchfork. That's not the devil of the Bible. The devil of the Bible says that he's transformed into an angel of light. And if God and the devil, Christ and the devil, walked in that door back there, and one stood on this side, and one stood on that other if you looked at them, you could not tell them apart. Oh, I know. Well, I look at his hands and see the nail scars in his hand. Are you kidding me? You think the devil can't imitate that? Well, down in Mexico, they got little statues of Christ down there that bleed on Easter from the hands and the feet. <laughs> There's only one way you could tell them apart. 
Only one way. Maybe someday I'll tell you. But I'm telling you. His main goal in life is to blind people to the truth. Through religion. Through deception. By imitation. By counterfeit. And now look at this. The Bible says that uh, he's an imitator of Christ. The Bible says God is light in John chapter 1. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that the devil also is light. He imitates it. The Bible says in Revelation 19 that God is king. In Job chapter 41, verse 31, it says the devil's king. He imitates it. When Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, when Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ, he comes on a white horse. In Revelation chapter 6, when the Antichrist shows up, he also comes on a white horse. And you know what else? Every theological seminary in this country and around the world, when they come to Revelation chapter 6, which is the Antichrist showing up, you know what they teach? They teach us Jesus Christ. Every one of them. You know why? He's an illusionist. He imitates. Revelation chapter 21, Christ is a city that's a bride. In Revelation chapter 17, the devil has a city that's his bride. In Isaiah 9, 6, Christ called a prince. John chapter 14, verse 30, the devil's called a prince. In John chapter 20, verse 20, Christ is called God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the devil's called God. He imitates. He imitates. Revelation 5, 5, Christ is a lion. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your devil, the devil, your adversary going about is a roaring lion. He imitates. He imitates. And they both use a Bible. When the devil first shows up in the Bible to destroy man, he doesn't come to Eve and say, hey, let's step out on your husband. Let's go out and get drunk. Let's go have a party. Here, smoke some of this. Let's go out and raise all kinds of, raise all, I was going to say raise Cain. She did that a little bit later. Have all kinds of issues and do everything. No, you know what he said? The first words out of the devil's mouth is, yea, hath God said. Then he changed what God said. Damned all of mankind from the Bible. You know that there's seven proper names for the devil in the Bible? Each one of them means something specifically about him and, and, and sometimes what he's trying to do. So he's called a serpent. He's called Satan. He's called the devil. He's called a dragon. He's called Lucifer. He's called the son of perdition. He's called the God of this world. Each one of them, of those titles, will go to a specific thing. One of them to Israel, one of them to the church. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, when you see him in the Bible and you want to study him, you break him down into an outline of three points. Easy to study, easy to remember. That's me. Here's how you want to keep reminding about the devil. Keep him in his context. You'll never get too far out of line. The devil is kicked out of heaven three times. And you want to divide everything about him into one of those three sections. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's kicked out positionally. No longer the anointed cherub. Now he's called the accuser of the brethren. This will run from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, up through the Old Testament, up through the New Testament, right up into the tribulation period.
And in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, you have an example of this, where he goes before the throne of God, and he accuses Job before God, the accuser of the brethren. Now, the second time he's kicked out will be Revelation chapter 12 and 13, Revelation chapter 10, verse 17, to be exact. And this time he's kicked out of heaven bodily. You see, when he's kicked out positionally, he loses the fact that he's the anointed cherub, but he still has access to be thrown the throne of God to accuse. But in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, they pick him up bodily and kick him out, and now he shows up down here on the earth, enters into the Antichrist. This will be your time frame, the middle of tribulation, three and a half year mark. And now he's kicked out bodily. And the third time he's kicked out is when he's kicked out eternally. This will be Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when he's dumped into the lake of fire. You just remember those three things. He kicked out three times. Genesis 1, Revelation 12, and Revelation 20. He's kicked out positionally, he's kicked out bodily, he's kicked out eternally. How easy can it get? Okay, so now we have the introduction. I want to break down this two verses here, 4 and 5, around God's plan and how he uses the devil to accomplish it. So with all the information in hand now, let's look at the most two incredible verses and glean from it what we have. I mean a real piece of the puzzle. Now look at verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for himself, Proverbs 16, 4. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Made all things for himself. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. You see that? Bible makes it very clear that what God is a jealous God. He wants the honor and glory from everything he created. He demands it. The Bible talks about Romans chapter 9, verse 21, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, it talks about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. God created everything for himself, and he wants the honor and glory out of everything, including you. And the Bible says in Romans 9, 21, that there's vessels of dishonor. He's talking to Israel there. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, he says, vessels of honor and dishonor, he's talking to you and me as Christians. Don't get the two confused. You'll wind up in heresy. And God will get the honor and glory out of people who serve him, or he will get it from the people who refuse to serve him. You need to understand this. You take a guy or a gal who, who gets saved and they want to give God the honor and glory of their life. They go, they serve God, they do everything for God, they, everybody sees it. God uses them, he grows them up, he teaches them the Bible, they get into ministry, they do things for him, and they bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and everybody sees it. Then you have other God's people who get saved, will not do anything for God, they'll never lift a finger for God, they'll live their life the way they want to do it, and they'll go on and they'll go on and they'll go on, and then God comes down and God deals with them. And when God deals with them, everybody out there who knows they're a Christian sees it, realize that God is not going to let us get away with sin, and God gets the honor and glory out of it that way. That Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are going to do it, God's people. It's just whether we do it now under a God of love or we do it at the judgment seat of Christ under a God of wrath. But we will do it. You know why? 
He wants the honor and glory out of everything. And you know something else? <laughs> He's going to get it. He's going to get it. I mean, it's not hard. Now, God will use the devil to accomplish his purpose. He'll give him all the rope he needs to ultimately hang himself. And he will use him, and at the end, God, who is supreme, will pick him up and drop him in the lake of fire, and all the world will know who God really is. In fact, if you want to see that in the Bible, it's Isaiah 14, verses 15 and 16. When the devil slides into the hell in the lake of fire, everybody there waiting for him and says, Is this the guy? Is this the great guy, the great devil? Yeah, you'll bet he is. And he's just like you now. He's in a lake of fire. And God gets the honor and glory out of it. Now, the second thing. I want you to notice that verse 4 is built around a day. Bible calls it an evil day. Four key days in your Bible you need to know about. Ever see it? Ever see a day listed in the Bible and say, I wonder if there's more special days? How could you, how could you not miss Mother's Day, who you have a relationship with your mother and lover, and not never miss this day, but supposed to have a relationship with God and the Word of God and miss those days? That's the end of my Mother's Day message. In the Bible, there's a day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. That's our day, the day you get saved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, there's the day of Christ. That's Christ's day. That'll be the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ. Malachi chapter 4 and about a thousand other places in the Bible, you find the day of the Lord. That's God's day. That's the second coming of Christ. And then here you find the evil day. Proverbs 16, 4, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. This is the devil's day. Four key days in your Bible. Four key days in your Bible. Now let's talk about the evil day. Let me talk about it inspirationally first. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day. There it is. Having done all to stand. Now that evil day for you and me is the day you first have to face the world on your own. When most parents lose their kids... They think they lose them down the line. Nah, the way you lose your kid, it may not manifest itself for 5, 10, 15 years. But where you lose your kid is that first day that kid has to face the evil day and he's not prepared. The day they have to face the world alone without you sticking up behind them, when they go to school or they go out into the world or wherever they go, and now there's no protection, only preparation. Most of them fall. One of my messages at camp this year, when I get our kids there, I'm going to preach to them about that evil day. That evil day is illustrated in Daniel chapter 1. It's one of the greatest studies anywhere in the Bible that shows that your kids are up against that evil day. And most parents don't even know. 
Unfortunately, some don't even care. But those kids, they wonder why they lose them. They wonder why they go into the world. They wonder why they, that what happened. I'll tell you what happened. They faced the evil day and was not prepared. Well, I'm going after them. We're going to spend four days together where I'm going to do everything I know how to do that we never have to look at another child in this church that we lose to the world. Never again will the evil day claim one of our kids. Never. And the month before, I'm going to spend preparing the parents that when the kids are come back, the parents are ready and together. Oh, camp's going to be something this year. Not that it hasn't been in all the other years. But we're going to get some things done. Now, in the plan of God, here's how it works. God wants us to be part of his total plan. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. That's the plan. We know that now. But he wants us to choose. He will not force us to love him, nor choose us against our will. In Isaiah, Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, you find a great verse that talks about the free will of man's mind. God will not force anybody to love him. He won't force you to get saved. This idea of the heresy of Calvinism is nothing more than that heresy. I mean, the very idea. In 45 years of ministry, I've never met a Calvinist who, if brains with gunpowder, didn't have enough to blow his nose when it came to the Bible. An absolute breakdown of the fundamentals of the Scriptures. I never met one in any way, shape, or form that ever understood anything fundamentally of depth about the Bible. I mean, give me a break. If God chooses some and leaves others, let me ask you a question. What's the point of having a devil? If God's going to use the devil to, to give man a choice, if there is no choice, why the devil? What purpose does he even play into God's plan? I'm going to show you what purpose he plays. I'm going to show you some things that Calvin didn't get. Well, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, you imbecile, that when God created hell, he didn't create it for man. The Bible says he created it for the devil and the angels. God never intended man to go to hell. He tells you in that passage that when he made hell, when he created hell, it was for the devil and his angels. He never intended man to go. Do you know why you go? Because you choose to go. You know why some of you are going to heaven? Going to spend an eternity with the Lord? Because through your free will, you chose to go. I'll show you some things that Calvin never got. A lot of things, including salvation. That's another message. Now we're going to look at the reason for the devil and darkness and evil. You've heard me talk many, many times about the great concept of contrast. One of, the great, one of the greatest ways to study the Bible. God will illustrate the things of light, the things about himself, but a contrast of darkness. Anybody who even has a smidgen of understanding about astronomy, and you look at the moon, most people think that if you've got a telescope and you're going to look at the moon... It's just common reasoning that the best time to look at it would be when the moon's full. 
But you know that's the worst time to look at it? You can't see anything on the moon when it's full. You know why? It's all bright. You can't see any detail. You can't see anything. It's just a big ball of light. You know the best time to look at the moon through a telescope is second or third quarter. You know what happens when you get the second and third quarter? You got that dark line that cuts the moon down. They call it the terminator. And when you look at a telescope during the second or third, maybe the fourth quarter, the detail on the lighted side is absolutely unbelievable. But you know why you see it? Because it's illuminated by the darkness. The contrast between the light and the darkness illuminates the detail of the light. God uses the devil because the darkness that he created and the darkness that he is always illuminates the light of God. You wouldn't understand God if you didn't understand the downside of sin. And don't give me this thing, well, you know, poor people die. Hey, no, no, it goes back to your choice. Contrast. So God uses and allows the devil, the wicked one, to contrast for you and me, man, his holiness and righteousness, that through the Holy Spirit of God, man might find God by God lighting man's consciousness and the word of God that is written on the tables of his heart that man knows this is evil, this is bad, this is good, and then through his own free will choose light or darkness. Contrasted is an amazing thing. Allow me to give you a practical application. In all churches, you will have people who get out of fellowship. Hey, I've been in situations where one gal, one guy, in a church of what, 250 people? 300 maybe? One guy, one gal got her nose bent out of joint, or his nose bent out of joint, and got out of fellowship with God. And immediately, you're all wrong and they're right. You know how I know that they're not right with God? You know how I know when somebody gets to that point in their life where the bulk of Christianity is serving God and one person over here isn't and suddenly want to pretend they are? You know what illuminates it? Contrast. The contrast between those that are doing the Word of God and the one who is not. The one who is dialed in and learning the Bible and the one that is self-righteous now and come to the place where they think they know everything and you're all wrong, but I'm right. Contrast. It's an incredible thing. Contrast will teach you so much. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 9 that he's the true light that lighteth every man that come into the world. Now it says every man. Now you know me, I don't put much stock in the Greek, but in this case I am. I looked it up. Do you know what the word every man means in Greek? It means every man. You know what it means in French? Every man. You know what it means in German? Every man. You know what it means in Swahili? Every man. You know what it means in Japanese? Avraman. <laughs> you know what it means in English? Every man. He lit every man that came into the world. Not just some. Every man. 
Every man and woman who came into this world, God has a plan. He uses the devil to contrast that plan. And when man understands and realizes and then gets touched by the light of God, he has to make a choice. Sometime look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Sometime on a rainy afternoon when you got nothing to do. It says there simply that, that you have false prophets that bring in damnable heresies whose ends are going to be in hell. And the Bible says about these false prophets who are going to hell, you know what it says? It says they denied the Lord that bought them. He bought even the false prophets. He bought everybody. <laughs> Problem isn't God chose some and didn't choose others. God, Bob, the issue is God chose all of you. He died for all of you. You know what the problem is? You don't want to choose him. Calvin wasn't stupid. He was a brilliant man. I've read his books. I've read his articles. He was a brilliant man. He wasn't stupid. He had an agenda. The stupid ones are the people today who follow him. Now, I hear the argument. Here it comes. I hear the argument. Well, boy, have I had this one handed to me many times. Well, okay, but you know what? If God created the devil, and God created darkness, and God created evil, then how is a holy God ever going to judge me at the great white throne judgment when he's the one who allowed sin to come into the world? He put it here. He's responsible for it. How is God ever going to judge me when he's the one who let it happen? Well, let me tell you how it is, that you old reprobate. Here's how it works. Yes, God allowed sin to come into the world. He brought darkness into the world. He created the devil and put him right smack in the middle of his plan. No question. And then the same God who did all that came down and died on the cross and made a way out for every man, every woman. He eradicated himself of bringing it in by dying and taking it out. Now you know what you got? Right back in your lap, your choice, free will. You won't beat God, brother. He's got a monkey wrench that'll fit any nut in this world. When I talk about understanding, depth, doctrine of the Bible, I'm talking about God's plan of eternity, past and the future, of what he's doing and how it relates to now, time, in our lives. The plan of God for you and for me, for the nation of Israel. You see, a man without understanding, saved or lost, he looks at earth, heaven, and himself in a very limited way. He has to look at it through science or evolution. Or if he's a Christian, the new idea is, is you know, theistic evolution. But a man of understanding, who knows the Bible, has a depth to him. He sees the complete whole picture painted through the Word of God, like our chart over there. A complete understanding. And he realized that the devil is an illusionist. He makes things appear one way when in fact they're another way. He simply takes truth away from man and replaces it with the illusion of truth. 
Yet in your Bible in Job chapter 41, verse 12, two greatest chapters in the Bible on the devil, Job 40 and Job chapter 41. Hands down, the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil. And when you get every scholar and every commentator and every teacher at every Bible college, when he goes down through Leviathan and Behemoth, which is the devil, he will tell you that it is a whale, a whirlpool, or an elephant. Well, you talk about brain-dead Christianity. He says in Job chapter 41, verse 12, to you and me, to a man of understanding who believes the Bible. He says concerning the devil, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Breaking that down for the simple folk, parts, that's the men that he's used down through history. Power, that's the nations that he's used down through history. There's 10 of them listed in the Bible. Do you know where they're at? And there's commonly portion. That's the religions that he's used down through history. Can you lay them out? Job chapter 41, verse 13, grasps a great question. Who can discover the face of his garment? Nobody outside the Bible you're holding in your hand. That's the only way you'll get it. Now, this is why the devil hates the Bible. This is why the devil wants to change the Bible, wants to take truth out of your hand. And very frankly, this is why some of you have real problems in your life when you begin to get into the Bible because he hates you getting into the Word of God or going to church that teaches it. He wants to take the truth right out of your hands and replace it with an illusion. Now, so far, you and me, inspirationally, the evil day will be the day when we face the opposition of God, the world. And we have to take our stand through our understanding of what God's doing and how important we are to that. Now, let me show you this evil day in a doctrinal sense. At this point in time, the evil day, doctrinally, will be at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation period, Revelation 12 and 13. It's the highest point of the devil's plan to stop God. This evil day in the Bible is defined and called the abomination of desolations. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Daniel the prophet spoke of it in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And an arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. He also talked about it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even under the consummation. And that determineth that shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, what exactly is this evil day? What exactly is this abomination of desolation that Daniel's talking about? The devil's day. Now, the New Testament passage on it is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is where it's defined for you. Verses 1 through 4. You know, the devil has always had one issue. And really one issue only. It's at the bottom of everything he does. Most people don't grasp this. They don't get that far down. It's been his problem all down through history. It started all the way back 
in Genesis 1-1 when he was in Eden, the garden of God, and this never ceased to be the number one issue that he has. He wants to be God. He wants to be God. He said back there, I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most, I will sit on the side of the north. I will be like the most high God. He wants to be God. That's been his ultimate goal. He's jealous of God and what he has and what he wants, and he wants to have it all for himself. So he goes about to undermine all that God does to get what he wants. Now, this is not uncommon or unnew. May I jump back in for a moment in the practical, inspirational? You see this to work in churches. I've seen it in 45 years of ministry. I've seen it all the time. Experience it sometimes. A man in a church who gets jealous of the pastor or he wants leadership or he wants something. He doesn't want to pay the price to get it. He wants what somebody else has. And so what does he do? He start, it starts in his heart. He wants to be lifted up. He thinks he knows a little bit Bible. Many times he thinks no more Bible than the pastor does. So he goes underground. It starts in his heart. He goes underground. The sabotage, the work of God beneath the surface. To get to a place where he can get whatever he's looking for, that he can get the notoriety. It's called the Absalom syndrome in the Bible. He builds a deception. I've seen him take, pull small groups out of a church and have a little Bible study just under themselves. John told the story one time. He told me years ago that when he was just a young Christian, they invited him and he was in my class back then. They invited him to a Bible study, and we went to the Bible study. I mean, John's thinking, oh boy, this is going to be great. When he got into the Bible study, there was a group of guys just like this, and they're what teaching on, and correct me if I'm wrong, the 10 or 12 secret things that Bob doesn't teach. Really? Well, why don't you bring them on Thursday night, and let's see what you got, big boy. Why are you going to do it in the dark, underneath? I've had them come to the place where they've actually formed up in little groups in my life, planning on going to start their own church. And they tell the people that are all part of this little conspiracy, don't go to church for the next two or three months. So when we start our church and Bob comes to you and says, what happened? Where have you been? They can say, well, we quit coming to church three months ago. Deception. Hey, That stuff's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. That kind of crap is out of the devil's playbook. Right in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You kidding me? (laughs) God, you got to love it. Now, that's understanding. Nothing new under the sun. Oh, yeah, and they get their little group. And the Bible talks about them in Psalms 26, 15, called the congregation of the wicked. It works. Now, back to the Bible here. Now, the high point for the devil and the evil day is when the devil officially sets down in the temple of God and makes the official proclamation that he's one and he's now God. That's the high point for the devil. The devil has now never made that claim before. Matthew chapter 4, when he went to Christ, he tried to get Christ to fall down and worship him. But he's never made the claim that I'm God. He's always come short of that. And of course, the time frame here will be the middle part of the tribulation period. He comes in the first three and a half years. He brings peace and safety, brings a pulse, a a solidity to everything. And then at the middle, he said it, the middle of the week, the Bible says he goes into the temple. He sits down in the temple 
and claims all the world that he now is God. And this is where the Jews see it and flee. A lot of material to it. I'm just giving you the outline. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Here it is. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word or by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means that that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now here it comes, verse 4. Who exalteth, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Here it comes, so that he as God sinneth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the evil day. That's the abomination of desolation. That is the devil's day. The devil's day, when God's day, is when he comes back at the second coming of Christ and becomes supreme ruler of the universe. The devil's day is when he thinks he's one. He goes into Jerusalem, he sits down in that temple, and he claims to be God. Now, we have a phrase in our culture that we use a lot, kind of a cute little phrase, funny phrase. But it got originated, without anybody knowing it, from the Bible, because all of them do. It's a little phrase when somebody does something and we say, well, he got his 15 minutes of fame. That comes right out of the tribulation period, because when he sits down on that throne of God and claims to be God, that's the devil's 15 minutes of fame. And that's about all he gets. And then God comes down and whacks him in the second half of the tribulation program, uh, 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 format. His 15 minutes of fame, then he gets clobbered. And then verse 5 of Proverbs chapter 16 shows us, as we've already said, this is a reference to the people who align with the Antichrist. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Now, he's simply saying here that it doesn't matter what the devil does or what he thinks or what he tries. His 15-minute fame is over very quickly. The second coming of Christ will put an end to the devil, and now God brings, uh, begins to move on into eternity to accomplish his plan. Hey, for 7,000 years. You know what God has done? That chart runs the course of 7,000 years. Your Bible from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to Revelation chapter 20 at the end of chapter 20 runs the course of 7,000 years. You know what God has done? In this thing called eternity, God has called out a little parenthesis called time. And that time has run 7,000 years. And God wanted a creation, as he already read, as, as, as Drake read. God wanted a creation of sinless beings that worshipped and fellowshiped him by their free will choice. So God carved out of eternity a little thing called time. And in that little thing called time, he created man and he put man down here. And the first time he put man down, man failed. And God said, okay, that won't happen again. I gave man his own choice. Man now will know forever that he can't find God. He can't make the choice on his own. He's always going to go the wrong way. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down and pay the price for man myself. And I'm going to ensure. I'm going to ensure. I'm going to assure 
that now if a man gets in me and gets saved, he will never have to worry about losing it again. There's eternal security for you. Why, if you could lose your salvation, you wouldn't be any better than Adam. He was created with the image of God, took the wrong, made the wrong choice, and lost it. You know how many wrong choices you and I make? At, well, you know how many wrong choices you make every day? <laughs> Our day is filled with them. If your salvation and my salvation depended on the fact that we always make the right choice, we're in trouble. Amen. No, no, we're in hell. He knew that. And when he carved out this time in eternity of 7,000 years to call out a nation unto himself, Israel, and a body for his son, the church, he did it in such a fashion that he came down and fixed it that what happened to Adam would never happen to you and me. I got some terrible news for you this morning. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and deep down in your heart you know you're saved, I got some terrible, sad news that you're going to have to carry with you a long time. You're going to heaven. (laughs) You made the right choice, and he fixed it, so that choice will be the last choice when it comes to your eternity. A universe filled with people. All things now in order, and God moves on to fulfill the increase of his government with men and women who by their own free will have chosen to be with God. And the Bible says, Genesis chapter 1, 3, God says, let there be light. John chapter 1 verse 5 says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. It's contrast. He used the devil to contrast the light from the darkness so you could see the detail of the light. You know, I know that's true. If you're honest this morning... You know why you're glad you're saved this morning and why you really love the Lord? If you're honest. The reason why you love God the way you do and the reason why you're here this morning the way you are and the reason why you dig into that Bible the way you do is because you know what you once were. The contrast of what you were and what you now are Illuminate your love for him. Light shineth in darkness, and that darkness comprehended it not. Now, by the time that we get to the end of Revelation chapter 22, I want you to see this. Once we look at that whole scope of things, we understand Proverbs 16, 4, and 5, that the devil was created for a purpose. God has a doctrinal purpose for Israel. He has a practical purpose for you and me. We've looked at them both. But I want you to see this. You probably never thought about this. God is a God of free will. God will not force any of his creation to love him. 
No man in this room wants to have his wife love him because she has to give her a pill every day that keeps her in love with him. No woman on this planet wants her husband to love her because she's got to mix up love potion number nine <clears throat> and have him drink it. <clears throat> and the moment she runs out, he doesn't love her anymore. You don't want that. What makes you think God would want that? You want a husband and wife to love you because they've chosen to love you. They love you because of who you are. You're good and you're bad. They love you because they are in love with you. And they love you because they made a free, they made a free will choice to pick you over anybody else they could have had out there. Now, if you can get that about yourself, why can't you get that about God? You would go spend the rest of your life wondering what it would be like and worrying about the fact that if you didn't give her or him the pill or whatever the next day, that you would lose them. No, no. If you look at this great plan of God, his three plans all connected together, time you get to Revelation chapter 22, everything that God created, everything that he made, has now made a free will choice. Look at it. The cherubims, there's five of them. They had to make their choice. One of them chose not to stay. The angels, God created them, but he gave them a free will choice. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, to the third of them went with Satan. They made a conscious choice. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, they made their choice. God says, here's two trees. One of them is darkness, one of them is light. One of them represents death, one of them represents life. You choose. Men from Adam to the law, they had to choose. If they didn't have to choose, what was the point? The Bible says that when Noah was building the ark, God gave him 120 years to preach every day so men would come and get on that ark. If God only chose the eight people to get on, what was the point? Under the law, man had to choose from Exodus to Second Chronicle. Joshua said it in 24.15. Choose this day whom you'll serve. It's a choice. He didn't say, all right, all you elect, come with me. <laughs> the New Testament, Christ shows up to Israel as the Messiah. They had to make a choice. That choice is found in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, if you care to look at it. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. And in the New Testament church, we have too. The Bible says in Revelation 22, 17, whosoever will. In the tribulation period, they have to choose. Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. In the millennium, they have to choose. Zechariah chapter 14. Then when it's all finished in God's mind, the eternal government of God, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, everybody and everything that goes with that government has made the conscious choice that they want to be there because they love him. All because of the devil being used of God for the purpose to contrast the light from the darkness. 
You know, the Bible's a great book. It's filled with so many things. But the Bible closes itself out and ends with one of the last invitations for man. After laying out all through the Bible, God's intents and all the things that he did, one more time, the free offer to be with him for all of eternity by man making a free will choice. He says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Free will is the absolute key to understanding all that God is doing because he, when he picks it up, he wants it filled with men and women and spiritual beings that have chosen to be with him. Proverbs 16, 4 and 5, incredible depth of verses. Let's pray.